Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Trump was like, no, no, absolutely did but not that's, say. But that's, I think, I wait think a second, <laughs> fucker. Uh, wait, hold on. Uh, now you've derailed my, my brain tubes here. Stratagem. Nah, fucker. You're coming at me. Yeah, that's true. Do you want me to fill in the air? No, no when, when, he, yeah. when he said that, uh, <laughs> go ahead, fill it in. See, like, hey, uh, I just want uh, for calm listeners uh, to know that um, everything's okay, but Matt just did have a stroke. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. I am pretty sure this is episode 78. I'm also pretty sure this is the evening of the 19th, October 19th to be precise, 2017. I am joined here by Matt Welch, editor-at-large, Reason Magazine. Horking and down some Angel's Envy we, we, we'll, whiskey. We'll Go do ahead. that in a second. And Go Michael ahead. Moynihan. Hi. He's <laughs> He does so many things. So many so things. So many. Poorly. At HBO. Poorly. Vice News Tonight. But he works for Vice News. It's confusing. It's We're confusing. already drinking. It's on. It's on. It's going down. It's going down. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Great. Warm face. Great. That's great. You know why, by the way? Tell uh, me you know why. I am great. Um... I mean, I haven't been very great often. Uh, recently, I come in and I'm like, a couple of shows, I don't even talk. It's like sitting in the corner. Just that was like, a weird rough patch. That was a rough patch for yeah. me. I was brooding a little bit. I was a lot of brooding. You guys were like talking about tax policy and I was like writing poetry in the corner. <laughs> really bad poetry. Um, so no, I mean, it, one of the things this week, which I thought was really great, was that we got a lot of stuff from listeners and uh, fans and things like that. And that's always, uh, it always buoys me a little bit. It's always nice. And last unless, night. Unless they're talking crap about you. Well, we'll get to that. Like Melba. Asshole of the week. Yeah, Melba's like <laughs> mad at me. Melba like doesn't. No, Melba, come. Melba, Melba. I told you it was all love. Melba no, responded. No, it wasn't love. Melba was happy. I went out with Melba, had a drink, and she and... pepper sprayed me in the middle of the drink. <laughs> and and I was like, Melba, baby, baby, I love you, Melba. <laughs> and she hit me with some Melba. Things have changed since Weinstein. We, we can yeah, it's different. We can say, <laughs> but um, but so last night I was out with uh, some friends um, from work for a drink, and one of uh, producer who has been at, at, at my company for a very long time and is, is really great, um, told me that she was in um, her home city of Halifax in, uh, in Canada. Hmm. Uh, and then we started talking about Canadian Tire and Tim Hortons and all the, oh, and the death of Gord Downey, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, the singer of the Tragic Hip, hip that, that uh, made uh, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, floods of tears from Justin Trudeau. Um, he is like, that is the most, we don't have things like that in America, by the way, just a quick aside is that there's no band. that's like a quintessentially American band. And it's like about America, basically. It would be Springsteen or no. Yeah. It'd be like Springsteen. And I by guess now, like no one wants to hear it. Not really. It's yeah. like, you know, you're going to Mexico with Juanita and the factory clothes. Get it. Let's get, let's move on. <laughs> Before you finish yeah. your anecdote. Yeah was thinking about this just today. The Rolling Stone had a, a big, long piece about uh, Tom Petty that was really great. And uh, Springsteen is quoted throughout, and he's very generous and yeah. talking about uh, Tom Petty's songcraft. And I got to thinking, like, at what point are we going to say that Tom Petty was better than Springsteen? Like, Springsteen, <laughs> Springsteen had an incredible, like, 74 to 85 
and then like fell off and then like petty kept making records that were pretty good yeah i mean i'm just i i'm a bigger heartbreakers fan than anything after heartbreakers yeah so, i mean it's like it's like the attractions and all this costello anything after the attractions is less interesting carry you know, on power pop, power pop stuff so halifax um I, i'm uh with my friend and uh, we're talking and she says oh by the way i'm uh, my i can't remember i don't want to screw this up but as a friend of a friend or a br brother's friend or a friend's brother or something like that i was a big fan of the fifth column and i, I was like up in halifax you got the uh, you got the uh, internet up there what's going on there can't fucking believe it and 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 tim kirkwood is his name and I was like, give me the, tell me who this guy is. I love, I love uh, Tim Kirkwood. So we had a little conversation about Tim Kirkwood, who was a fan of Vice stuff and, and a Fifth Column fan. And I was like, yeah, I don't know why, because it's the thing is weird. We do the radio show, right? And this goes on Sirius XM too. Mm -hmm. We do it, it goes out on podcast. Mm -hmm. And then we leave and I always forget that people listen to it. I just think there's us <laughs> talking. And then I'm like, oh, there's a guy in Canada that listens to it. And they're like, oh, we got a lot of people that listen round, to it. Round oh, the it's world. very strange. Yeah. The we're talking weekly. like Norm MacDonald after that. I was like, I got a guy there in Canada is listening to it. <laughs> I just gambled my yeah. life savings <laughs> on the golf game again. Yeah. The live tweeting golf stuff is great. But yeah, so I, when I, uh, Tim Kirkwood made my uh, night last night, despite the fact that I don't know Tim Kirkwood, he could be a complete jerk. Serial killer. <laughs> he, can't, he, he can't be. No, if he's, he's a, a call he's probably amazing. But, yeah. but that was great. And then um, and, uh, I, uh, Camille says a number of people. Yeah. But he sent on a message from somebody who, uh, and I believe the quote was to, to tell me to eat some fucking gummy bears. <laughs> and why the person said that is they heard this howling, whistling, beeping in the background, which is for a, a, a sort of mating call for diabetics, as I'm a type 1 diabetic, my continuous glucose monitor was telling me that I was about to die, <laughs> go into a coma. And apparently Camille said multiple Dexcom users, and this is a thing that wow. you slap on your body and it's a subcutaneous thing that kind of tells you your what blood sugar. What does that word mean? It means it's just, it's not like, you know, like a needle subcutaneous, it just goes anywhere, basically. That's the simplest way of doing okay. it, like in all your fatty bits. Hmm. And so uh, it tells me about my blood sugar and um, and all these listeners <laughs> were like, apparently we have a lot of diabetic listeners, uh, very <laughs> uh, diabetic friendly podcast that had emailed and said, um, was that the the sound of a Dexcom glucose monitor. So I revealed myself by this, by this, um, Buzzing well, we should, we should it's point just nice. I'm just saying it's nice that there's a great community of people out there that like us and some that are slightly skeptical of Camille. Uh, of me. <laughs> I, we should point out that before this podcast uh -huh. started, uh, that little beeper went off about 17 times. Yeah, I was in a tough spot there. <laughs> yeah, we saved you. He we was scrambling you. for gummy bears. Yeah. Or what was it? Some Chad, kind of well, Chad, had a, Chad had a fucking Slim Jim. Chad like <laughs> came back from the Trump rally with like a box full of like pre-Halloween yeah. candy. He comes like fucking racist Chad, <laughs> as always. Chad, I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm not actually racist. No, um, Chad is fish. But no, like, I, I, but because you don't know Chad, you know his last name, I can tell you that he's like, no, I went to the store and I got like a fucking two liter of Diet Pep Dr. Pepper, not diet, it was like regular, like regular Dr. Pepper, a Slim Jim, and a fucking bag of gummy bears. Which, Chad, which is amazing. Seriously, get it together, man. Kept you alive. <laughs> We're talking about diabetes, you're going to get type 2, okay? First aid I'm kits filled with, filled with, the, filled with uh, gummy bears. Um, I say that because I'm filled with love for Chad. I, I understand. Now, because he just saved your life, which is good. Playing despite the fact that he's anti-Semitic. Um, I, should, I should also mention that our very good friend Anthony Fisher is also in the building and, yeah. and behind the controls. Uh, Fisher, it's it's good to have you uh, on board. I'm here. Yeah, try try not very to quiet. screw this one up. <laughs> yeah, we're Thank good. you we're very good. much. Yep. Good. Second place. Um, <laughs> did we we have some other housekeeping stuff to do before we talk about the all important? Just another uh, shout out to the Angels MD uh, 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 progenitor. 
Who, yeah, who, who, could you, who did, could you who talk, that's talk your, to us a little bit about the uh, about your, the beverage that we have here, Matt? Are, are you enjoying it? Is it is it smooth? It's, listen, to be honest, so many it's people called, fast forwarding right it's now. It's called <laughs> Angel's Envy, and it has alcohol. So I'm, I'm going to love it, even if that's it's fucking good, though, fireball. Um, yeah, but it's actually really good. Uh, Peter Suderman, who has become weirdly since we moved out of Washington, Moynihan. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, Camille used to live in Washington too. It's true. Um, like back then, Peter. Like his diet uh, consisted. Like, we can talk shit about Peter Suderman. Yeah, sure, he's, he's fine. Yeah, he um, likes us. Like all that, he, he would like come to the office and put like a Stouffer's pizza in the oven. Yeah, and and that that was like his whole dietary yeah. intake. And since then, he's become like a foodie and a drinky, like Mr. Cocktail what? guy. Oh yeah, he like is an originator. He's the Jacob Greer of the East Coast. Wow. He's uh, he, he wrote a big. That uh, sounds super annoying. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> there was there was. I, a, I kid with the painter. I'm joking, Peter. <laughs> gotta get him on here, but he talks yeah. really fast. He's very fast. You have to like get him some more Angels very Envy. But uh, Angels Envy is one of his favorites. It's really good. It's the kid who uh, met you in the basement. And yes, yes. You James, his James, Lockhart. James, James Lockhart. James Lockhart. That that uh, last Lark- part did not did happen, but I did. I did meet him at Cato, um, and uh, he was. We are still enjoying the the gift, the libations that he gave us. It's seriously um, among the best grateful. whiskeys I've had. It's it's super good. That's Kentucky that's Kentucky straight wonderful. bourbon whiskey. And he didn't even know what you wanted, so he purchased this. Just, the word angel, just it's channeling uh, Matt Welch. It's great, James. It eases the pain. Thank you, thank you. Well. Without further to do, so maybe we get into the, the news of the week. There are quite a few things going on this week. Uh, a great deal of controversy swirling about. Um, I know that we've had recent remarks from both uh, John McCain and some guy named George Bush, who used to be yeah. president, throwing shade at uh, Mr. Donald Trump. I don't know if we want to start there, if we perhaps want to go to uh, Niger and talk about some of the uh, the goings-ons there, but... I'd well, start, you could start, start with Bush. Bush, Bush, Bush okay. foreign policy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. just chat a bit about this uh, Bush foreign policy situation. Well, what? Matt and I were trying to figure out who wrote the speech. Um, I think it's probably Pete Weiner was my guess, but um, but yeah, so he... Um, there's a speech today in, in New York City for the... Um, some sort of conference that the George Bush Institute, George W. Bush Institute did. Um, and, you know, for the most part, Bush has pretty much stayed out of politics since he left the presidency um, and, you know, actually said publicly that he didn't think it was it was cricket, as the British would say, to, you know, attack Obama and things like that. And, he, you know, I think that there is obviously a difference in 2008 when a man who, you know, presided over a, a catastrophic foreign policy decision and was widely hated. <laughs> a. Uh, um, yeah. Well, oh, I mean, one big one. Uh-huh. Um, and, in the room. and was uh, widely hated and, and, and um, had very low approval ratings and, you know, wanted to retreat to Crawford and, and paint dogs and paint himself in the bathtub and whatever the hell he also did. But so I, I get that there's after a while, you maybe want to get a little bit more into the fray. I mean, that's kind of in the blood of the Bush family, right? So he hasn't said very much. So it's rather interesting that he comes out now and um, and a full attack against the Trump administration without ever mentioning the Trump administration. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. essentially what this amounts to. It's called to. a sneak diss. Now, there's people are saying, oh, my God, George W. Bush, the attacks. I see these headlines all over the place on stuff on Twitter and people, um, you know, tweeting clips of this speech. Here's the interesting thing is that what I found interesting about it is that it is a bog standard. George W. Bush kind of 70% neocon speech. 
nothing about what George Bush said is a turn on anything that he's ever said in the it's past. It's freedom in the world. In the world. It's a Shur- he mentions Sharansky. I mean, he talks about free trade. You know, he talks about immigration. Immigration. And, you know, in the sort of Jeb, very Jeb tones and, you know, George W. Bush tones, too. Um Basically says that America should project its power to, to to spread democracy as he has in the past. But he throws in a few things that are kind of specifically um, aimed, uh, kind of definitely uh, aimed at the Trump administration. Right. And so not, nothing surprising there. If you know George Bush's ideology as as much as there was one, and I actually think there was one. Um, it wasn't very bright at certain parts, but, you know, he has a coherent ideology, unlike uh, Donald Trump, is that. I found it interesting because there are so many Republicans that were waiting and seeing from January 20th to today, and some a bunch of them are falling off, but a bunch of them are being primaried in 2018, so they're kind of tempering their criticism. But it's it's surprising to hear this because any conservative of George W. Bush's kind of background and ideological background and who the people he he's interested in are. I mean, he was seen carrying Sharansky's book in the White House, etc. So if you have that kind of ideological underpinnings that George Bush has, none of this should surprise you because Donald Trump is against you. He insults you, etc. So we conflate George W. Bush, who is in his very post-presidency period and hanging out in Crawford, but not saying very much with Republicans on the Hill who have to compromise all the time and are desperate to like, let's not piss off the president because we have X, Y, and Z to accomplish. And let's see if I can be the one who influences him because as anybody that I've talked to who knows Trump and has dealt with Trump says the same thing. The last person to have talked to Trump is the one who he's listening to. He does have a short attention span. And if you talk to him last, He's going to go with, I mean, this is what happened with the, you know, Afghan women and flared pants in the 70s. Uh, look how amazingly liberal and sort of modern Afghanistan used to be. Let's, you know, re-up 50,000 troops or whatever it was. Uh, here are some images of Syrian children foaming at the mouth because of a gas attack. Okay, 75 Tomahawk missile. This is what happens with him. And so all these people in D.C. are desperate to be that person who's in front of the president and can influence him just for a little bit of time to maybe get something done. And so we conflate George W. Bush with those people. We expect everyone to pull their punches. He didn't at all. And was it a good speech? In parts, it was. Well, I, if you're not mentioning the guy you are ostensibly it's, it's talking on about purpose. by name. It's on purpose. If you're not mentioning him, are you are you not pulling punches? No, it's it's, on, it's no. absolutely on purpose. That I, is what you do when you really want to humiliate somebody is you don't even give them the yeah. credit of mentioning their name. And can I and can I push a bit further? And, and we should and we should perhaps consult um, the, the the actual record here. We've seen yeah. nationalism distorted into nativism, forgotten the dynamism that immigration has always brought to America. Yes, consistent Bush themes. Uh, we see a fading confidence in the value of free markets and international trade, forgetting that conflict, instability, and poverty follow in the wake of protectionism. We've seen the return of isolationist sentiments, forgetting that America's security is directly threatened by the chaos and despair of distant places. That last bit, I'm not so sure about. Yeah. Um, there are certainly yeah. some people who believe in those sentiments. I'm not certain that Mr. Trump um, is one of them. He had been critical of, uh, of W's foreign policy. Um, which was continued by the Obama administration in many parts. But but some of that stuff feels like uh, platitudes, I think, is a, a fair word. We've seen nationalism distorted into nativism. I mean, nationalism often has some nativism associated with it or they're, they're, they're close 
cousins, I think perhaps. A, I think a fair reading is that there's more nativism now than there was four years ago. For sure. Uh-huh. Without a doubt. I'd say I'd say that's true. <laughs> yeah. I don't so, know. I mean, I mean he's, he's responding to that. That speech itself, it's like, as was McCain's, which is a pretty similar speech mm-hmm. with uh, more like saucy uh, Mark Salter uh, language. For the sake of some half-baked, spurious nationalism. Furious. Um, I find myself nodding in vigorous agreement with 77% of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the part that bums me out um, in a way, maybe that's a little bit different than the people who are preemptively saying, whatever war criminal, fuck you. Um, so that's Lucy Steigerwald. And I'm sure Thad Russell and a bunch of other people. And I get that uh, argument, um, but I still agree with the 77% of, of, of those words. Um, but there is on the side of the people who say whatever war criminal, um, Bush is talking about how there's been a collapse in confidence in uh, our leadership and our elites. Uh-huh. And so what I want to hear from any of these people, from John McCain, from George W. Bush, doesn't have to be everyone every time. Evan McMullen, uh, from Ben Sass, from Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake will actually do this, but the rest of them, for the most part, will not. Um, fucking John Kasich. Oh, I'm sorry. I got my. By, f- by the way, fucking Rand Paul with the with the Roy Moore stuff. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Horrible. So. What I want to hear from any of these people is like, yes, I uh, agree with many of those sentiments and actually think it's an important thing to be said right now. Like norms, to use a terrible word, are going out the window in a a weird way that's bad. And it's worth talking about and it's going to affect things that I care about in a negative way. And and it it, it creeps me out, makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, So um, let's talk about some of the decisions and some of the people that helped midwife this heavy and kind of uh, uniquely not particularly American lack of trust in the uh, elites and in our basic governing structure, mm-hmm. not just the elites. I mean, there's always an American distrust of elites, but when Americans just like, fuck it. And I've gone nihilist. Um, part of this is, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the Chris Hayes, elocution his book is, is, is the twilight of the elites. Like people screwed up. Just as they had screwed up in Vietnam, uh, you know, the best and the brightest uh, kind of generation, like the smartest people in America screwed their minds up and did this. And this was the wrong thing to do. So I want to hear from George W. Bush, not in this speech, because it's not necessarily the the appropriate venue for him to eat a bunch of crow. But I want to see some semblance Mm -hmm. of reflection from the John McCain's and everybody else like, hey, you know what? Um, Iraq didn't help. I'm not sure why that wouldn't appear in this speech. I mean, to to the extent you're going to be critical of of the the Trumpian foreign policy, whatever it is, which appears to be continuing to do most of the same things that we've been doing while occasionally saying different things. It is in large part directly associated with the foreign policy that was pursued by the Bush administration. I think you do claim responsibility for that. I don't know. I mean, look, I yeah, finish finish your point. Yeah, I'll I'll just take it a step further as well. A lot of the gross sentiments that are in the ether, the, the Richard Spencers, the, the, hostility towards immigrants. There's something to be said for all of those things. I think it's it's problematic to conflate all of those things with the reality that the Trump administration is pursuing so much of the same fundamental foreign policy 
that the prior administrations were. Uh, let, let me let me jump in before Michael says the same thing um, so, uh, <laughs> that I seem smart uh, or dumb, um, <laughs> which is that there's a fundamental difference in the way that Trump has approached in rhetoric. And eventually this will come to policy on uh, United States uh, relationship with international institutions uh-huh. and post-World War II trade and multilateralism and stuff, which is totally which is true. A brand new fucking thing. Like we yeah. haven't we have not seen this. They're reacting to that. It, the the shoe hasn't fallen yet mm-hmm. necessarily, right? Uh, is that the right shoe fallen? It's hard yeah, to maybe. say. Um, I, 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 I know where you're. I know where you're going. I don't know if I'd use that one. Yeah, yeah. but like, uh, <laughs> so we haven't withdrawn from NAFTA yet, but we still might. Yeah. And so there's, uh, and I mean, I ha- think on economic policy, you're you're right. I mean, the, the anti-trade not, rhetoric from the Trump administration I, is is certainly is certainly disconcerting. The fact that there is so much why, populist why, sentiment yes, in the ether is certainly disconcerting. Do you want George W. Bush or any other previous president to take responsibility for that too in his speech? No, I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think George W. Bush is the architect if of you, the populism, of the wave of populism that isn't just taking root in the United States. It's also manifesting itself abroad. And it isn't just taking root in the Trump administration. It is very much the same kind of economic policy that's being talked about and advocated for by the single personality on the left who could even be defensively suggested is the 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 leader of the party right now, Bernie Sanders, who was just on CNN last night debating uh, uh, Ted Cruz. Um, uh, like, the billionaires, Ted, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. pop, if I mean, the populism is is of concern, that is separate and apart from the foreign policy, which seemed to be it was the common thread um, aside from the allusions to problems with certain, again, disgusting ideologies that are certainly talked about a great yeah, deal. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things about this is that, you know, I, I'm always I think that you're right in the sense that I think George W. Bush probably has, uh, you know, deserves or, or, or should allow the American people a, a greater accounting of what happened in his foreign policy, mm-hmm. what he thinks about it now, et cetera, and not do this kind of politician dodge. I mean, they're sort of programmed to, to, to you know, one would expect after eight, nine years that he'd be more reflective about these things. And I don't know if that's because he's kept the people away, but when he came out, I mean, by the people being the jur- journalists away and people who can actually interview him, not Matt Lauer with his daughter sitting next to him on, you know, fucking NBC morning show. It's like these paintings are amazing of the soldiers and they ask these kind of road questions, but you need time with somebody like that. You need time in a Frost Nixon kind of way to kind of go after Bush. Because the thing about George W. Bush. Did you try to interview him, by the way, for the Richard Boston? I'm, yeah, well, we're, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing what's going to happen. Well, oh, I, really? I so hope so. so. I'm pursuing him. I hope so. Good. But I'll, I'll say this about him is that I think Donald Trump seems to me like a bad guy. Just he seems like generically, I don't know what that means, but he seems like not a guy in like the old stupid saw about somebody you want to have a beer with and everything. I think George Bush was ill-suited for the presidency. I think he thought that sort of neoconservative project would make democracy flower in the Middle East and it would be his great legacy. And the people of the Middle East would love him for it because he didn't understand what kind of undergirded all the troubles and sectarian nonsense in the Middle East. And he said, you know, it's just going to be like, you know, Germany and Japan in 1945. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, good intentions is not an excuse. But I don't believe that George W. Bush is a sort of evil guy that was doing, you know, there's some, and the reason I say that is because there was so much written about him as this kind of mustache twisting villain. I just see him sort of more as a dopey, like bumbling, blundering guy who, yeah, you know, he was taken advantage of because he wasn't 
sort of clever enough to 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 outflank the people like like Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld. That happened later in his second administration. You see him actually emerge a little more, but. I also, the thing about it is that in, when you're saying like, should he have said something in this speech? I do believe he should account for this. But I also always used to tell writers when they were reviewing books for me of like, make sure that you review the book at hand and not the one you wish the author had written. Yeah. And at this, in this thing, I think he's doing a sort of broad brush state of the world now, reiterating what he believes that the, the ideology of America is. I think there, that's a crazy thing to do that there's one single kind of ideological point that America has, mm -hmm. but that's the kind of the way that he presents it. And what was interesting about it was that all the kind of rote stuff that one would expect from Bush is that he essentially talks about, there's a lot of oblique things in there. And if a good speechwriter, and I don't know if Pete Winter wrote this or who wrote it, but a good speechwriter will, you know, put these kind of subterranean ideas in there that, that talk to, you know, dog whistle a couple of people. There was a, a point um, that I thought was pretty interesting that I think that to bring this up is essentially to accuse Donald Trump of coddling Nazis and white nationalists, because he says white nationalists in it. Why bring up white nationalists? That's a huge, strong force. But there's a quote, there's a line, and he said, our identity as a nation, unlike many other nations, it's is not, not determined by geography or ethnicity. Or soil or blood. blood uh, or soil or blood, which he has mm -hmm. it backwards. Yeah. But that's the... No, but that's even... Yeah, that's, the, that's, that's even masking it a little more. The German phrase, Blut und Boden, like mm -hmm. London's a Nazi phrase. And it's the Richard Spencers of the world, and Richard Spencer today. Sure. And Thursday was having a little stupid rally at the University of Florida where the protester journalist ratio to Richard Spencer is 600 to one is normal. Um, and, you know, if you're calling out blood and soil rhetoric when you're talking obliquely, but obviously about the Trump administration, that's a pretty you're making a pretty serious point there. There is a line in there. I mean, to, to piggyback on your point uh, about uh, intentions, uh, that was the best line of the speech for my money was that he said, and I don't have it in front of me, but um, essentially um, we shouldn't look at our enemies uh, from their worst possible angle. Yeah. And we shouldn't look at our own actions from our best possible intentions. Yeah. This is an act, a, good line. Yeah. a total truism in American pol politics. Um, I think we, we're, we're at this uh, stage in the culture. Uh, we're becoming a low trust society. I went and saw it today. Sorry for whacking your uh, microphone there. And that sounds a little bit more yeah. specific than it should yeah. be. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just sitting there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty appealing, big. to be honest. Um, I saw Jonathan Sachs today, uh, uh, who I'd never, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the, yeah. the, the, uh, the of, rabbi, the rabbi. Yeah. It's, it's built into his, his name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, give a talk, uh, that I, I found to be today, I found to be a, a very, uh, kind of impressive talking about, um, he was portraying American, uh, society and history as being contiguous with the Old Testament in which uh, it's based on both contract and covenant. So mm -hmm. in, our, in the American case, and I, I'll let Fisher handle the Old Testament, uh, but like the uh, in the American I'm perfectly case. Perfectly capable. My, my Seventh-day Adventist background, I'm steeped in many things about the but biblical Dude, I thought tradition. it was all like the book of, of quadruple revelation that you guys you have. Know, we, like, we spend a lot of time in you the You know, the Testament. Pope and the American Nazi dictator are going to get together mm, and sure. it's going to be a <laughs> That'll come. alliance. That'll, That'll come. Just relax. Ben Carson will come with a flaming dove. <laughs> That's not in there. It's yeah, It should be. <laughs> 
Uh, but no, the, for in the American context, the contract is, or the, the covenant is the Declaration of Independence. The things that it's the high ideal that binds us all together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and the contract is the, the, the Constitution. And his point, and I think he's mostly right, is that we've lost the covenant aspect of it. And we've retreated into populism, which, as he points out, never works. It can't. It never. It can't fulfill its promises. And he was very much there's the populism of Bernie Sanders on the left and then the sort of the Steve Bannon uh, uh, Trumpite on the right. And the, you just it's but this is a, a, a symptom of what happens when you get into a, a complete low trust uh, atmosphere where everyone assumes the worst about their fellow man and woman. And that's a bad place to be. It's mm-hmm. actually just, you, I mean, you build in conflict to the American political system. There's, it's an adversarial system and that is fine as it stands. But we are now at a place where on one side you have uh, essentially an army of trolls. And on the other side, you have an army of people who are forever defining the boundaries around who can or cannot be an acceptable person. So on one side, you have Jimmy Kimmel and Eminem and other people saying, you can't be my fan and uh, and still like like Trump. Like, you just can't do it. It's mm-hmm. not possible. The troll side knows that it's surrounded on cultural issues in the media and the entertainment complex. Um, it's the Ann Coulter uh, kind of side uh, by people who are hostile to them. And so they value this kind of, how can I like set, trigger them off? How can I say that my network is called fair and balanced? Because I know it's going to set off the acceptable boundaries people out and like drive them nuts to distraction. And so in that atmosphere, you're going to have people forever and increasing until the cycle stops, not giving the best benefit of the doubt to their uh, opposition well, at all, well, giving can- the opposite of it, and also giving their own intentions in terms of government policy and all kinds of other things they do, the highest possible gloss. And it's a nightmare world for those of us who don't fit normally into I, those yeah, worlds. I don't I don't blame uh, the media, as so many people do, for creating the climate that um, gave us Donald Trump. I don't. I, there's a, a million no, reasons for it. Doesn't make sense. Uh, sure. That said, mm-hmm. I will try to, you know, make sense of why people do feel this way. And what's very rarely discussed, and probably never discussed, is the fact that Donald Trump arose in a time. I think that you know we had Tim Tim Snyder on the show. I you know the comparisons to fascism and the rest of it I find facile and silly and mm-hmm. flabby and just you know a way to make money and, and, and scare the hell out of people. It's a good way to make money is scaring the hell out of people. May also believe it. I don't know. May also believe it. If he does, he's, he's a silly man. Cause I, 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 tr- I try not to think of him as a silly man cause he, he wrote a couple of fantastic books. Um, but if we think about it in the way that, you know, what is the, the kind of historical situation, the economic situation that gave rise to fascism, right? Because we hear these, these, these things all the time. I, I, less of them now, by the way, it's, it's, it's kind of tapered off a little bit of the Trump fascism stuff. But if you look at Weimar, the Weimar Germany, obviously you have hyperinflation, which comes and goes a few times. You have a dysfunctional political culture. You have a revolution in 1919, a year after the end of the first world war, um, in Munich, it was of, uh, communists. There was the cup 
putsch. There was a far right kind of putsch in the, in the early 20s. Then the Nazis tried the same thing in, in 1923. What people do, also don't remember at all is that the communists, and the Nazis were fighting each other in the streets and killing each other a lot. So, you know, there was an old, there were old street fighters, Strassenkämpfer. They like, would kill people in the streets. They would have their martyrs. The Nazis had someone called Horst Wessel, which they have a song named after and a film about him called Hitler Jungekfex, which was like this. I mean, think of this climate. People are dying on the streets in democracy. And the, the two factions that are fighting each other and killing each other on the streets, who are becoming the kind of largest political parties in the country, are avowedly and expressly opposed to democracy. Uh, this is going to end. Quick interjection oh, sure. here, just mm -hmm. uh, from a historical point of view. Pre-World War I mm -hmm. Germany, so like post-integration after the Franco-Prussian Wars, 1870s and whatever, like the last, yeah. the last, the 40 years before. Sure. Democracy, not democracy. Not a democracy, but you know, some Close. measure of stability. I mean, you know, if but like B Bismarck gave the Germans health insurance. I mean, it's it's a, I mean, it's a fairly you know, it's a, it's a the Kaiserreich. It's a you know, an empire. I mean, it's it's not dysfunctional in the way that Russia was dysfunctional. It's a different kind of a different thing. But the fuse is lit after Versailles, and then all these extremist parties come. And the reason I mention this is that. You have a tinderbox in that country and the conditions for what was going to happen that did happen and ultimately, you know, enveloped the countries that surrounded it and, and you know, United States too, et cetera. How do we explain Trump? Because the media, it makes a very, very easy scapegoat. And I understand the instinct to lurch towards that blame because what does America look like? Everyone forgets to ask themselves this basic question. What does America look like in 2016? He's burning it up on the campaign because he's talking about immigrants and he's talking about rape, rapist immigrants and they're, you know, they're taking our jobs and NAFTA's like, what is the unemployment rate in America? Oh, look, I get that people say there's been no job growth since, you know, uh, or as a wage growth since 1981 mm -hmm. to today. Right. Yeah, that seems to be true. I'm not an economist. I'm not going to pretend that I know it and I know people disagree with the specifics of it. If that is in fact true, okay. Look at Spain, for instance, right now. It's like 48% youth unemployment. Look at France right now where, where, you know, Emmanuel Macron is about to blow up the country and there's strikes across the country because he wants to change the labor laws that are making his country's economy sclerotic, right? We had nothing like that. Wage growth was garbage, right? We had a disaster in 2008, the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and there's been a decent recovery. It's not, it's been one of the worst recoveries on record, but it's not terrible. I went out to shoot something in Indiana, talk to these people that, that were losing their factory jobs that Trump went out and talked to them, a carrier, Rexnord, these places. And the unemployment rate in, in Indiana is effectively full employment. It's like four something percent. I mean, this is not Weimar Germany. So it's not, we normally talk about these comparisons to say it's not Weimar Germany, therefore Donald Trump is not a fascist. This is not the conditions for fascism. Okay, well then let's explain him. What is this moment in American history where things aren't great, but they're not horrible? Come on, it's not horrible. You know, I mean, if you look at other countries, Western democracies, even I'm not talking about Tajikistan, I'm talking about Western democracies that have a rough go of it, like a country like Spain 
or a country like France, where the economy is, you know, floundering and as it has. Even their immigration experiences, which are totally different than ours. I mean, what would totally America different. do if there was a Charlie Hebdo attack followed by an Eagles of Death Metal attack, followed by, you know, a, a priest being beheaded in his church, followed by a truck attack in Nice? I mean, good God, we would wet ourselves and elect somebody who made Donald Trump look like Norman Thomas. I mean, this is like we are Americans are reactive in a very particular way that if you look at actually the real situation in America, you know, the net immigration is like what zero and had been because yeah. the economy is so bad. People are leaving. And, 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 you know, somebody I talked to who's, you know, close to the administration the other day said it was immigration that got him elected. And somebody had to talk about this. They didn't want to hear the Jeb Bush shit anymore. They wanted to hear the Donald Trump shit. Okay. But what effect was immigration actually having on their lives? Pretty negligible, I would say. I mean, these these people would argue with me. So yeah, you've built up to like there should be a theory. Well, that's the thing is that I the only thing is I think that that's why people get to the media theory because they can't look out at the great expanse of America and see the American carnage that Stephen Miller uh, stupidly wrote about in the inauguration speech. It, it's not there. You know, crime is down. I mean, yeah, it goes well, up in here. Certain, and in certain places, we in are seeing increases in violent in violent crime. Well, yeah, look, I mean, we, if you look at Chicago, is Chicago's a disaster. Baltimore's a disaster, et cetera. But let's look at the country of a whole. Baltimore and Chicago are not turning an election, you know? No, but but we are seeing violent crime increase in, in various places. And and I think the way... But 1992, stag, we got Bill Clinton. We didn't this get is, Donald this is Trump. true. But it only, it only takes so much of a spike, so much of an increase to actually make people panic. And, and a lot I, of heavy breathing. And I think perception, well, perception is is important here. It is. And the fact is that wage, stag wage stagnation for a lot of Americans has been a problem. We, we have seen an increase in the percentage of people who are working two jobs in order to in order to get by or who have had to take on very different roles. Um, the the long term unemployment numbers have been uh, fairly high. So the unemployment rate obviously doesn't capture everything. So there there are particular communities that have been hit very hard um, by economic uncertainty, let's yeah. call it. Um, and, and I think that that is true around the globe. And but that's I, been I, true for a long time. I think that's I think that's true. And look, I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that a lot of these messages we've talked about it recently, actually, that Bill Clinton, when he was president of the United States, actually had a political agenda that in many ways sounded a hell of a lot like Donald Trump. Um, he was tough on crime and wanted to lock people up for longer periods. He was tough on immigrants and he wanted to do something about the fence, which wasn't a wall at the time. So these messages have resonated with Americans for a very long time and continue to resonate because there's always an underlying uncertainty. Um, but there's also, I think, something that is happening when it comes to economics. But I, I want to move back towards the foreign policy stuff a little bit and at least open this up a bit more to the trifecta, I think it's three, uh, of scandals that the president found himself embroiled in this week. At the beginning of this month, um, around October 4th, I believe it was, you had four members of the U.S. Special Forces who were killed in Niger. Not Nigeria, Niger. Um, I'm, I'm sure Many of you have no idea where Niger is on a map. I, I um, that would actually put you in very good company with almost certainly most of the people in Congress. But for a number of years Did now. Do you think at any point that he was over at like Niger Innes' house? <laughs> for a half a second. Yeah. But for a number of years now, the United States has actually been actively involved in um, military activities in Niger, uh, things that have been ramping up since the Bush administration. All of this happening under the original AUMF that we got after 
September 11th. We've got several hundred at least U.S. service persons that are in Niger. And on October 4th, four of them were killed um, while on patrol on the border there in Niger. And the president got himself into a bit of trouble because after 12 or so days, he hadn't said anything about this publicly. I've written them personal letters. Uh, they've been sent or they're going out tonight, but they were written during the weekend. Uh, I will at some point during the, the period of time call the parents and uh, the families because I have done that traditionally. Uh, I felt very, very badly about that. I always feel badly. It's, it's the toughest, the toughest calls I have to make are the calls where uh, this happens. Soldiers are killed. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. Now, it gets to a point where, you know, you make four or five of them in one day is a very, very tough day. For me, that's by far the toughest. So the traditional way, if you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents, most of them uh, didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. I like to call when it's appropriate, when I think I'm able to do it. Uh, they have made the ultimate sacrifice. So generally, I would say that I like to call. I'm going to be calling them. I want a little time to pass. I'm going to be calling them. I have, as you know, since I've been president, I have. Uh, but in addition, uh, I actually wrote letters individually to the uh, soldiers we're talking about, and they're going to be going out either today or tomorrow. Peter, go ahead, Peter. I don't know if he did. No, no, no. Uh, I, I was I was told that he didn't often, and a lot of presidents don't. They write letters. I do. Excuse me, Peter. I do a combination of both. Uh, sometimes it's it's a very difficult thing to do, but I do a combination of both. Uh, President Obama, uh, I think probably did sometimes, and maybe sometimes he didn't. I don't know. That's what I was told. All I can do, all I can do is ask my generals. Uh, other, other presidents did not call. They'd write letters. And some presidents didn't do anything. But I like, I like the combination of, I like when I can, the combination of a call and also a letter. Here, here, Mr. President. Here, Mr. President. Now, obviously, um, the, the president was, was spinning uh, a bit there. And much has been made of several things. Um, first, the president mentions Barack Obama by name and then says, and other presidents, and asserts that they don't really call, that they don't call frequently, and clarifies later that, yeah, I think Obama called at some point, but someone told me, I don't know. There was an immediate backlash. Eric Holder, the former attorney general, has tweeted tonight with a photo, stop the damn lying. You're the president. I went to Dover Air Force Base with President 44, Barack Obama, and saw him comfort the families of both the fallen military and DEA. The president further compounded things by sticking with this point, refusing to kind of refine what he said any further, just standing firm on that. And when he finally did start to make phone calls, um, the controversy was further inflamed because he said a few things um, in ways that were perhaps a bit inelegant um, on the call um, and uh, had a gold star mom pretty upset. He said uh, he knew what he signed up for. Um, and also there were some reports that the president perhaps forgot the guy's name because he was referring to him as your guy during the call. Um, yeah, yeah. Clearly, there's there's a lot of like 
media consternation about this, but I, I talked to Kennedy about this earlier this week on her show. And, you know, the, the thing that really stands out to me is, yeah, four guys died in Niger 12 days ago. And 12 days later, we're talking to the president about the way that he has or has not talked about this publicly. And when he starts to talk about it publicly, we're trying to figure out whether or not he was firing shots at Barack Obama. Um, totally agree. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that stuff is kind of interesting and cute. But the truth is, I don't know that most Americans know that why we're in Niger. I don't know that most Americans have any sense as to whether or not this is a worthwhile sacrifice for anyone to be making. And it seems to me that the only thing I would be interested in, if this were one of my loved ones who had died, is not whether the president is calling me, sending a, a carrier pigeon, or showing up on my damn doorstep, is why is Mark dead? And why did Mark die in Niger? Why are there more than 100 maybe military operations that are taking place in some way, shape, or form on the continent of Africa? These seem like big, important questions. And I think it it relates to sort of this broader question before about confidence in the elites and America doing good in the world. And the fact that for most Americans, and it's certainly true for journalists as well, because I don't know that most Americans are interested in reading articles about Niger. Um, it's certainly not the case that no one has reported on the fact that there are American military option, operations taking place in Africa. Um, most of those related to the war, the global war on terror and many places were going after people who are who have sworn fealty to ISIS, um, perhaps after having previously sworn fealty to Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda and ISIS don't really like each other, but whatever. We go everywhere and anywhere to fight these people. We have a, a situation where we have been constantly ramping up our engagement around the world in various conflicts. And the conversation that is being had, the particular controversy here, is whether or not the president, one, called early enough, whether or not he deliberately lied and was throwing shots at Obama, um, and whether or not he was good at talking to this particular mom. Um, I suspect when he said he knew what he signed up for, um, that Kelly's take on this, John Kelly, um, when he spoke about this, is probably about right. The president was probably trying to do something eloquent and say, look, he, he knew what he was signing up for. He knew the risks he was taking. He was where he wanted to be despite all that. And as much as all that's true, it still hurts. It hurts. I, yeah. And he's not good at this shit. I he's bad at it. I can't, I couldn't agree with Camille more about this. And it's like, I, I feel like I'm in one of those uh, Twitter things where you confess your unpopular opinion. I actually, my unpopular <laughs> opinion is I kind of want to defend Trump on this, is that he, it's really indefensible in some ways is that the defense of him is that he's a fucking moron. And the defense of him is that he is somebody who has the opposite of a way with words, whatever that would be. He's just a horror. <laughs> not have way. Yeah, not the have way. opposite of a way with words. Yeah, whatever that is. Good. It's a, you know, it's ironic that I yeah. used it for that because uh, apparently I don't either. <laughs> but a complete car wreck that man is. And when I saw, when I read that and I heard that, and I saw a few people that like lefty friends of mine that had actually made the same point. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'd give him a hard time on this one because it's clear to me that however he phrased it, it's like, we can, we can, and Camille's point is right, is that 
the fact that we're not talking about, wait, why are we in Niger? Like Niger, Niger, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's two pronunciations. <laughs> I say Niger when I talked about it in the show. But it, like, if uh, let me stick to that then. When we're in Niger, why are we there? It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Niger. It's why, because Niger you, Innis. I think that's Niger why we say Innis Niger. Is, yeah, because are Niger you, Innis and Roy Are Innis. you in Iran or in Iran? Guy? Iran. Iran. I, it must be like, so you're well, like... You're five years younger than me, seven. I'm 26. Right. <laughs> Did you hear the laughing from the control room? No, thankfully the listeners didn't hear the yeah. laughing. Like if you yeah, you're gonna hear Anthony Fisher laughing. If you if you were a sentient being in 1979, it's fucking Iran. Yeah, there's no. There's yeah, no I know, but I, you know, it was also yeah. like you know we were eating Stouffer's dinners. We we've moved on, Matt. Yeah, and if you're you're 60, it's Persia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I know you love the Shah, but could just fucking chill out a little bit. But uh, no, but on the on this way, like clearly what the guy is trying to say, I'm going to the president, the guy, is trying to say is like, the guy is, uh, he died doing what he loved and he knew the risks of it and he did it anyway. But that is not, he's a halfwit. He's a dribbling moron and he can't, he knows, he has the thought and it comes out this way. I'm actually giving him the benefit of the doubt because having watched hours of tape with this guy, of this guy for just for, for years, but more so now than ever, he's, when you read it on the page versus when you, when you hear him say it, which I hadn't actually heard before, it sounded much worse when I read it, that it was like, oh, I see what he's bumbling and stumbling towards. And is that an excuse? No, he shouldn't be the president, but that's our fault as Americans that he is. But, but the, the, uh, it is. Not me. Well, not me. I didn't vote for him. But on the- Okay, it's my fault. Yeah, did you vote for Trump? <laughs> no, fuck no. Okay. Um, but, and the larger kind of point here is that, is that, you know, this is, we, we've gotten to this habit as us in the media, that the noise is the story. Mm -hmm. Because every time it's like, oh, we got someone we can hang him on. Now it's like, you don't, I know this about him. I know that he is a complete moron who can take any sentence and any sentiment and butcher it and slice it up into little kind of, I mean, it looks like, you know, Dresden in 1945. Uh -huh. This is what his sentences, how I visualize yeah, them yeah. as piles of rubble. And, you know, I, I'm not interested in that anymore. To be honest, I'm not. I'm interested in the policies. I'm the journalists in the room love They it. do. And it's you, because you it's cheap and just... easy. And like, and he's like, well, you just said you're going to call. Like, yeah, I do think it's crappy that you respond that but way. Also, it's, I mean, it, life in politics is personality driven. True. I and, agree. And you, you mentioned earlier, like if uh, somebody uh, just to interject yeah. quickly and then finish, uh, uh, if somebody had said to Camille's point, if somebody had said in that press conference up front, if the if the maybe somebody didn't, it was just not broadcast by any networks It's on the feed somewhere. But if newspapers had run with this, if Twitter had run with it, if, uh, you know, CNN was I was watching this morning, this stupid morning show with that unbelievable moron, uh, Chris Como or whatever family. Oh my God. That it's like watching that. To be he's one of these people that on interviews slow boat oh to Mauritius. God. I don't even care if he's right about an issue. He's one of those guys that is so overwhelmed by his old moral righteousness that he lets nobody finish. <laughs> it's, I was like, I have to turn this off. It was driving me crazy. He was battering some, some Republican congressman about this issue. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But was he saying, sir, was he saying, and sir, no, that's, that's only Keith Olbermann. Yeah. But, but if this, if we had about a 50, 50 coverage in which the U S mission in Africa or the U S sort of sent in the horn of Africa was even mentioned or discussed, 
I would be like, okay with this. I'd be like, yeah, that's what you should hold a president's feet to the fire, even though he's normalized it and we're so used to him being a moron. We should talk about it, but not at the expense of the larger story here, because these people could care less. They've been so like from the beginning of the campaign, they've been feeding off this Trump moron, not narrative because that suggests that it's false. It's true, but it's like they, they love these little things. They can get out there on Twitter and have little clips and have a bunch of dinkuses get on TV and like debate it. Like, I don't like Trump's a moron. What are we debating about this anymore? We dug our own grave here. I'm accepting that now. Can we see what this damn moron's policies are, particularly the policies in Africa where four people are dead? Yeah, it's he's a horrible monster because the way he treats Gold Star families. But there are Gold Star families because somebody was killed. Why were they killed? Are more people going to be killed? Can we talk about this a little bit? No, we can't. It's a, there's an amazing thing to watch. Ed Krajewski wrote a good piece uh, in very much the spirit that you just ranted at, uh, Moynihan, uh, today over Reason, uh, talking mm -hmm. about— uh, i got to stop drinking. These in—no. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, your thing hasn't beeped, although did you disarm it? No, I put it in the other room. <laughs> oh, I, I can tell you it's beeped many times. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> And He's also, gonna uh, die here. And also, I don't want him to die. And also, beeps when I'm being annoying and ranting. <laughs> I mean, if we're, if we're if we're gonna get a Moynihan death, we need to maximize it, like yeah. for uh, ear balls. Don't joke. Cold open. That. Don't. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I see what you. I see what you did mic, there. Mic drop. Damn yeah. it! That's a go. pretty good one. Pretty. pretty. Uh, no, uh, uh, Krajewski is pointing out that. Uh, a bunch of lefties on Twitter today is like, oh, this is uh, this is uh, uh, Trump's Benghazi. All the people who cared about Benghazi, where are you now? Yeah, why do you want a huh? fake scandal? And why do you want your own fake scandal? Well, here's the thing, and 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 Ed makes the point, and I and I uh, largely agree with him, although there are obvious uh, differences in the in the two in terms of free speech, blaming the YouTube guy in Cerritos, California, and all that, all that kind of stuff that uh, all of us have talked about here before. Um, is why do these four bros die um, in that in that country? Uh huh. Like like that that actually is a commonality. It's not one that necessarily needs to provoke five thousand hearings on Capitol Hill, but it is a it is a legitimate question. And you're right. If if the the coverage kind of mix was fifty fifty, it'd be a lot easier to go down. That all said, um, personalities drive politics people love this shit they're yeah, drawn to I it agree. you had said camille before like the uh, journalists were going after like trying to look for some whether is he you know saying things about obama he volunteered that he like he, he did but he, he volunteered that he said, out of nothing yeah out but, of absolutely but this is, nothing but Matt, it's the way it's the way regular people talk no if you, it's if not you watch no but this is absolutely actually, not but it actually also is not a regular listen, person He's listen, no. listen I, I, and i understand i understand all that you watch the video and listen to the man talk again and the man says you know obama and other presidents and he, he extends his hands to place emphasis on this and as soon as he's asked about it he backs away from it look i'm that's I'm not fine. how regular people talk i'm fine talk actually it is no. regular people are sloppy 
They're crude. They sometimes say always when they mean sometimes. They say perfect when they mean it's pretty good. And they say everything when they mean some of the things. But that's just a that You're is, talking about emphasis but, versus a fault. But I'm telling you, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you that that is precisely the sort of thing that Donald Trump does. It's not as though when asked about it in the moment, he doubled down and said, no, Obama never called anyone. He said, no, look, people told me, I don't know. I'm sure Obama called at some point whatever i i find it i find it galling that we're even having a public debate about whether or not the president lied about this it seems obvious to me that he didn't mean literally no one ever calls he's trying to insinuate that he always calls well, and he he's did, called everyone he did but but he did give a misleading interpretation of his conversation with uh, the widow who's barking or the, the I, I'm not I'm not so sure if he did give a misleading interpretation of that, but it, he did. He did in the sense of this when uh, when uh, the congresswoman and it's now like yeah, a, whose a, name I can't remember Wilson mm -hmm. uh, from Florida uh, said that he uh, uh, mentioned this. He signed up for this. Trump was like, no, no, absolutely did but not that's, say but that's I think. I wait think a second. <laughs> fucker. Uh, wait, hold on. Uh now you've derailed my my brain tubes here. Stratagem. Uh, You're coming at me. Yeah, that's true. Do you want me to fill the shit in? Do you want me to, <laughs> you want me to fill in the, the air? No, no when when he yeah. when he said that. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, fill it. <laughs> See, like hey, uh, I just want uh, for calm listeners uh, to know that um, everything's okay. But Matt just did have a stroke yeah. in the in the room right now. But no, without I mean, the look, diabetes. Look, uh, it's. I think that, that that my problem with it, and I'm I'm in in a, in a very slight agreement with you on this, is that it, my problem is the problem of emphasis uh -huh. that this is going on for like way way too long, because basically Donald Trump could 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 you know end this story by not he can't not have an argument. Right, where, where he's the protagonist. Where he's the protagonist. That's here's the, the problem. The, the narcissism is on fucking display, and it was in on fucking display when he went after the Khan family last year. Yes. This is this is the selling point of Trump. You, it's not it's not just like some random accident that he can't talk through a normal thing where human dignity would suggest that maybe you would tuck it away and you wouldn't fucking fight for it. You wouldn't compare yourself to all your forebears. You maybe. wouldn't act like a stupid asshole. That's what he fucking does every time and that's why fucking people and, voted for and him you know what? and I'm not going to sit here and, and think about like well we know this and so that's fine no we don't tolerate Americans don't act like this my father wouldn't like uh, fucking Moynihan's father wouldn't act like this but you know he what wouldn't we, act like this but you just you know wouldn't what we fucking will, do it but you know what we will tolerate we will tolerate. We will tolerate body counts. We will tolerate body counts in yeah. faraway countries for con in conflicts that we have no fucking idea what we're pursuing there. No one has any interest in it. An AUMF that gives the president, any president, every president, unilateral authority, do whatever the fuck they want. It, including firing nuclear weapons, because that is the way that our government works. And confidence in that apparatus, confidence in the people who uh, who hold those offices is deeply problematic if it is not actually reined in by people who are, care about the details. And it's not clear to me that they do. And, and look, what, one last thing related to this. Eric Holder's defense of the president is, of course, Barack Obama called some of those gold star parents. Yeah, he made plenty of them. And it's important to focus on that fact. Whatever else Donald Trump is, however egregious and awful he is, the 
fundamental failures, for the most part, are the office. It is the office that makes him capable of doing that. His oafishness oftentimes results in the things that he is pursuing not being obtained, like, for example, a health care reform effort, which has effectively turned into him criticizing payments to insurance companies and demanding a bipartisan effort to try to fix this problem, which pretty much just codifies the payments to insurance companies, which were of questionable legality before and may, in fact, be of clear, straightforward legality going forward. He doesn't know what he's doing, but that's not the point. Whatever the stratagem, whatever the vision, whatever the grand, ambitious ideology that's being articulated, it's not clear to me that most of the rest of these people know what they're doing either. It's not clear to me that the public is particularly curious about what's going on. And it's not clear to me that most of the yeah. journalists who are supposed to be asking tough questions are serious about well, this I shit think either. I think a good journalist in this situation, and I haven't seen it uh, very much to, to, to your point, about that we have this kind of never-ending confidence in the, the president of the United States to take these military authorizations and do whatever the hell they want and don't really have to explain it to us, is that if you see a president acting the way that Donald Trump uh, has been acting on this particular issue, which I think is like gross in almost every way, um, one would hope that the logical leap there would be like, wait, this is the guy who can pull the plug on an operation in Niger or can authorize it why is this happening when you see him having a little snit and a temper tantrum about a gold, now gold star family and debating them on this point while their son is is in a pine box just being unloaded mm -hmm. from an airplane like, a you know, an old duffel bag? It's we don't make those connections. We silo them in a way is that look at Donald Trump acting this way. It's like, OK, why? To your point about the confidence that we have in presidents, et cetera. Why don't we see that and say, good God, this is the person that is authorizing these things who, who as you know, we don't, there, as, there is any one person. There's any one person. Mm -hmm. I got a, I got a text uh, message from a friend of mine the other day and I'm going to read it to you. He's um, yeah, I, I'll tell you who he is later. He said, been thinking a lot about the presidency and why we even have the office. Want to make something to the effect of abolish the presidency? <laughs> Which I was like, and I wrote back, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. It'd be Is this a colleague advice? Uh, not necessarily. Um, <laughs> not necessarily. Uh, but it's, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a funny, funny thing. But, you know, to, to, to Matt's uh, sort of ranty point uh, before is that, like, it is astonishing that Donald Trump actually engages in this sort of thing and that, that that kind of narcissism on display making about himself, which everybody said, you know, we like that during the campaign, uh -huh. but we mistook, not we, a lot of people mistook this sense that Donald Trump was like that on the campaign trail because he knew, you know, the 4D chess thing. He's really outsmarting yeah, yeah, us here. Yeah. It's like, no, he's just a temperamental baby and who everything's about himself and everything is, I mean, he, he, he became a celebrity. He became somebody publicly known in the era of page six, when page six was a big deal in New York, the gossip page for the New York Post, and you're always sending out these little epistles to fight the battle and keep, you know, on the right side of uh, uh, of the debate where you look good in the end. And Which Harvey Weinstein used to great effect. Oh, yeah, for sure. As, as Ann Coulter uh, wrote it, it, like a very credible, good column uh, this week, talked about all the page six 
people who uh, ran interference. Oh, for, for sure. And, and and that's I mean, if you look at I and mean, that's the, the, the cauldron in which the, the per personality of Donald Trump was forged. And it's it's like he we thought this again when we didn't. But a lot of people thought this was was the strategy during the election. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It's a personality flaw is that, you know, seeing him act this way after the campaign, it's like, you know, do you remember that? Does anyone remember that incredible first couple of weeks when he's arguing about the crowd size? Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, yeah. you yeah. won. No, that yeah. was the, remember, arguing, I mean, he's, that yeah. was the first salvo. Uh, uh, first salvo. <laughs> I mean, that should have like cratered everybody's confidence that this was some sort of well thought out scheme to to like appeal to a certain base of the Republican Party and then walk away and actually be normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was arguing with the crowd size and then arguing that maybe because of some illegal voting, he actually did get more. He couldn't. He couldn't just win an electoral college. I went. I, I have to get all the popular vote too. And he's making these absurd, mad arguments and him and Chris. Kobach and all these people. And we see that nonstop. He's a petulant baby. Mm -hmm. And this was about him. Like somebody said, like, I gotta, I gotta win this argument against a mother who's grieving, who just died in a military operation that I had control over, that I could have pulled back with, you know, the, the, the you know, dial of a phone. But he doesn't care about that stuff because he's an infant. He's a huge, inarticulate man baby. And that's the person that is running our country. Is the media playing this in a way that I wish they wouldn't and sort of change the focus. Have they gotten into bad habits of doing the Trump thing of like, what fucking idiot thing did he say today? And that's going to be the better headline. Yes. But that doesn't absolve or vindicate the fact that our president is a like, a, I mean, it's, this is, no, I no, even, it, I mean, I, what does one even say? I can't say it doesn't, more than it doesn't an inarticulate absolve. Man it doesn't absolve him, but I think what it does is it is for the thinking person who is serious about about obtaining good outcomes from quality policy. They are actively scrutinizing this and they're saying it's not the guy. It's not. It doesn't just boil down to his inadequacy or ineptitude or his awfulness. He can be all of those things. And the fundamental challenge can still be. Um, the the institutions and the incentives, um, the incentives for the politicians and policymakers and the incentives for the voters. Let's let's think also. Oh, go ahead. No. Yeah. That look on your face. I, I want Pivot you to look. I was going to ask yeah, you, you. Did you say you need to get yeah. out of here at 10, Matt? Uh, ideal world. Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. I should get out of here. Too. OK. Uh, any idiots write anything, though? No. no I, oh, my God. Tons. I, but I don't need to talk about them. <laughs> I, just need to take I got one unless Matt has one. Uh -huh. Go. All right. So uh, our pal Lawrence Lessig, Harvard University professor who uh, inexplicably has me blocked on Twitter, even though I'm, I'm the most polite person ever on Twitter, uh, has a uh, had a thing in Medium, which Newsweek kindly reprinted on the five steps to get Hillary Clinton into the presidency right now. If Trump is definitively found to have colluded directly with Russia, he would be forced to resign or be impeached. No explanation for a law professor. It looks weird. If Trump is removed, Vice President Pence would become president. If Pence becomes president, he should resign too, given that he benefited from the same help from Mother Russia. Talking like Keith Olbermann now. If Pence resigns before appointing a vice president, Ryan, Paul Ryan, of course, would become president. If Ryan becomes president, he should do the right thing and choose Clinton for vice president. Then he should resign. This is where we're at. This is the resistance. Yeah. This is Harvard University professors using their own public platform, their bully pulpit, if you will, to uh, just 
continue to deny reality, deny the fact that a completely winnable election against the most disliked presidential candidate in history was lost by the quote unquote most qualified candidate in history. We are now at the five steps where the Republican Party will commit Harry Carey and hand over the presidency to Hillary Clinton. There we go. Great. <laughs> um, I, I will take an opportunity um, here at the exit to uh, just shit on Minister Farrakhan and his uh, his Whoa. budding friendship with uh, Richard Spencer. Ms. Minister Farrakhan this past weekend held an event in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and the event was called Separation or Death, and he gave a fiery sermon um, in which he talked about the necessity of black people who are the original man and gods separating themselves from mankind as in kind of a man, white people who were created by Yaku in a lab or Jacob. Um, This, this man articulated his brand of divisive racial tribalism. After giving them 400 years of our sweat and blood and receiving in return, some of the worst treatment human beings have ever experienced. We believe our contributions to this land and the suffering forced upon us by white America justifies our demand for complete separation in a state or territory of our own. Do you know white people of intelligence feel the same way? Somebody told me that the alt-right, Mr. Trump's people, we kind of like what Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam is saying. We're with them to separate in a land of their own. I said, very good, Alt, right? Y'all want to talk about it? Talking has been done. He tweets, black people, we should be more convinced that it is time for us to separate and build a nation of our own. To which Richard Spencer replies, we in the alt-right are open for a real dialogue. Um, the two of you deserve one another and the the, the perspective I have had on this for a very long time is these, these two guys have a hell of a lot in common. And the one thing that I find deeply troubling is the degree to which, uh, minister Farrakhan is someone who is permitted in polite society and that lots of prominent people, um, are happy to take photographs with him are happy to share the stage with him, are happy to endorse, I guess, the better attributes of his views. And the fact is that I don't see a hell of a lot of difference between doing something like that with him and saying, you know, there are a lot of good people there too. Really? Mm. Seriously? At a Nation of Islam conference where they are actively talking about racial separatism and 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 like Richard Spencer, anti-Semitism. You should, and and, <laughs> and more, even more than Richard Spencer. Towards the end of that talk, I mean, there is a lot of allusion to actual acts of violence, to actually m- proceeding to violence if you don't get your demands for a country or territory of your own met. 
there is something really gross about that. And it's disturbing that it can exist in a section of our politics and that there are folks who a large swath of folks who find portions of that agreeable. I, I think that's pretty deplorable. So heaping scorn on both of them, similar brand of scum uh, without qualification there. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you this. He was a pretty good Calypso singer. Back in the day. <laughs> Look it up. Louis Farrakhan, uh, either Roxbury or Dorchester, Massachusetts. Little, uh, I was like Little Louie or something. It was a yeah. Calypso singer. It was something like Handsome, I believe. Yeah, was handsome Louie. Yeah. It was a racist Louie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Certainly is now. Yeah. Coming up on the next, we have a song from anti-Semitic Louie. He's a young kid <laughs> from Boston, and he's going to tell you about the Jews. It was actually, his name was The Charmer. Charmer. Oh. And and uh, the first hit that comes up on YouTube is a title called Ugly oh! Woman. Oh! Yeah. She she must have been white. Do you see what I did there? Ah, it's very <laughs> funny. Racism is so funny. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Bye. Let's go home. Bye. Later. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.